The following program is being brought to you on the Green Talk Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit thegreentalknetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Welcome to Episode 19, Global Crisis and Ocean Journeys of Hopeful Discoveries. My guest today is Alana Mitchell who's the author of a wonderful book, an international bestseller, Seasick, Ocean Change and the Extinction of Life on Earth. Anna, it's good to have you on the show. Alana, Hi. I mean. Hey, it's good to be here, Rob. Um, let me say a little bit about you. Alana is, has spent 14 years as a writer covering trends, science, and the environment at the Globe and Mail. She is the author of Dancing at the Dead Sea, Tracking the World's Environmental Hotspots, a book also published by the University of Chicago Press, as well as uh, the book we're talking about today is titled Seasick, Ocean Change and the Extinction of Life on Earth. And Alana is calling us from Toronto today. And also joining us is uh, Mike Dunmire from Ocean Champions. Mike usually comes in at the last 15 minutes. But I, I asked Mike to say a word at the beginning because... Mike introduced me to Alana's book, Seasick, and played a role in bringing her onto the show. Hi, Mike. Hey, Rob. So I want to thank you for um, putting this together. Oh, you're welcome. It, uh, it, it was an honor to, to meet Alana, and uh, at least to get to know her a bit over the phone. Um, I think you know from uh, my story, I was on the Ocean Champions board for a few years, uh, but working in the corporate world, and uh, had this wonderful coincidence of timing where at the same time that I was really thinking about why, with so many things troubling the ocean today, and that being the thing I cared most about, why am I only uh, engaged on it part-time? And then right at that time, David Wilmot asking me to join him as his partner. And so as I, I plunged into this uh, uh, around last April, and shortly thereafter, my wife, as kind of a gift along those lines, found Alana's book, and uh, and gave it to me, and I read it, and I was just so pulled in because to me it it, it just there are so many bad things going on, so many troublesome things going on. But but to really understand it, the the, the body of knowledge is all over the place. And Alana's book really pulls together all of that information so well, uh, and then conveys it in a way that really moves you. And unlike a, a lot of great scientific work that's out there. I think this really brings it home to people in a way that you know, perhaps and hopefully can change attitudes and change behaviors. Alana, I've um, grown up reading Rachel Carson's books, The Lost Woods and The Edge of the Sea and The, the Sea Around Us, 
And um, I really think that your work is uh, reminds me greatly of Rachel Carson's work. Were you thinking of that when you embarked on this journey? No, but I, of course, I had read her books, and I um, very much, most particularly, the See Around Us, because it was just such an extraordinarily um, clear description of the science at the time she wrote it, which was right after the Second World War. So I was very conscious of her and her work, but uh, she has huge shoes to fill. (laughs) She's not. You don't start a book like this and think, oh, gee, I want to be the next Rachel Carson because it's just too big. um, No, but the influence is clearly there. And and so many people are told to go read Silent Spring, and that's a difficult read, and it's all full of wonky numbers and stuff. And and the only reason that Silent Spring was read was because we loved her other books so much that we couldn't (laughs) wait for the next one to come out. And um, Oh, dear. And, and well, she was one, you know, she talks about bringing her, her nephew down to the water to look at tide pools and stuff. And yeah. uh, in the tide pools of Maine, where she used to go off of Booth Bay and stuff, there are little sea squirts that right. are become more numerous in recent decades than in her time. But um, I love the part in your book about where you talk about these, um, the finding of a particular sea squirt. Now, sea squirts I am attracted to because they belong to the same phylum of animals the chordatas that we do, and but unlike us, it's only the young sea squirts that have a nerve cord in them, and then the older ones go Cecil and give it up or something. Um, so um, tell us about this special um, sea squirt that was found and, and taken to new places and uses. Well, the, it, this is a sea squirt that was found um, in the Caribbean, and it was it, it was you know, just in little shallow water, but it was part of a big program that the National Institutes of Health started in, you know, back in, in the mid-60s to try to f- see whether there are any compounds, any chemicals in, in you know, animals and plants in the wild that could possibly used, um, be used to fight human disease. So, they, you know, there was this big sort of, you know, investigation all over the, all over the world, all over the planet to try to find new compounds. Uh, some years ago now, they started looking at creatures in the ocean, and the sea squirt, strangely enough, um, turns out to have these incredible properties to kill uh, cancer cells in humans. And so, and it's become, and in fact, the compounds from this, this sea squirt that, that was discovered some years ago it took 20 years, you know, sort of run, running through a, a regulatory process in Europe and here and all over the place. And ultimately, uh, you know, there's a drug now called Yondelis that is made from the compounds in the sea squirt that, uh, that, that isn't as a brand new way of fighting cancers, some cancers that have metastasized and are therefore really hard to, hard to treat. We are, I work on trying to save um, ocean areas and shorelines, and the mangroves are an important barrier and stuff. And so it's great to learn that the little sea squirts from the roots of mangroves in the Caribbean should play such a big role in, in uh, our medicine. It's amazing. There are all these ca- compounds, you know, in plants and animals that we could never we could never imagine as human beings. You know, they just are so complex and so unusual that we would never think of them. But here they are, just sitting in a little sea squirt, <laughs> and in all sorts of other animals potentially in the ocean. So you find them in easy places like along the shore. But what led you to go looking for sessile animals way down in the ocean deeps? Well, this was this was just one of these dramatic, uh, you know, life-changing events for me. I, I was, you know, planning all the research for my book, Seasick, and I, I just wanted to be in the ocean, not not just down as far as 
I could scuba dive, which is maybe, what, 160 feet or so. I really wanted to be at the bottom of the ocean as far as I could go down. And it's incredibly hard, to, you know, for somebody like me to, I'm a journalist, so, so you know, to, to get down that deep is, is really very uncommon. Um, you know, there are only a few dozen vessels in the world that go, that go really deep in the ocean. And I found this wonderful woman at Harbor Branch Oceanographic Institute um, who does research this is uh, who does research in, in submersibles that go quite deep, that go to 3,000 feet. And this is a HBOI, Harbor Branch Oceanographic Institute, was set up with Johnson & Johnson money. That's the big company that had, you know, the baby powder and all that stuff. And they originally set it up just, just to explore, but ultimately they wanted to, to find new drugs that would help people. And so the research that the group at Harbor Branch does is, is to go down sometimes very, very deep, uh, to, to as far as 3,000 feet and see if they can find new compounds to treat human disease. So Amy Wright is the scientist I went down with. She allowed me to go uh, in in this little tiny submersible, you know, four, there were four of us in total in this thing, and um, and to look for for animals that stay put in, in very deep water. And because they stay put, they're sessile, as you say, it means that they have to communicate using chemicals. And they're usually chemicals that are unknown in the rest of the world, but they, they, they communicate by, they attract food and they attract mates and they, you know, repel predators all chemically. That's how they, that's how they work. And so we were looking at a bunch of these, um, these animals that just stay put in the, in the bottom of the ocean, communicate chemically, and that were in part of the ocean, uh, part of the planet that no one had ever seen before. That's amazing. No, <laughs> it was incredible. <laughs> Amazing that uh, we're so used to animals using sound to attract each other or displaying plumages and things like that. And here are these these boring little critters. Well, at least they look boring from a distance. They look like acorns or something just stuck on the bottom. I've developed these complex chemicals, I guess, that are as diverse as the you know colors and and um, songs of other animals. Well, it's it's interesting because so many there are so many more blueprints for life in the ocean than there are on land. So what we see around us on land is a certain type of a certain type of animal and plant, and it's, it's but there are very few actual uh, blueprints for life on 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 land. In the ocean, it's much more complex, much more diverse. Life started in the ocean, and uh, and there just is much more different type of. Uh, body parts and body structures and, and that kind of thing in in the ocean and there's on land and we don't we don't tend to think of that. So walk us through going down three thousand feet into a dry tortuga sinkhole off of Florida. Ah, oh, well, I mean, for one thing, I was just terrified. I mean, I have never yeah. done that kind of thing. I I don't really scuba dive and I only you know do a little bit of and I'm terrified of water. So the whole my whole journey to understand the ocean was was a journey. To, to combat fear and despair. So when I discovered, I mean, I actually, you know, deliberately did not look to, at this submersible before I knew I was going to get in it because I, I wasn't sure that I would have the nerve to, to, to actually get in this thing. But I mean, picture if you will this this quite small vessel that has a huge plexiglass uh, sphere at the front, and that's where the the scientist and the pilot are, and they've got these robotic arms that they can use to at the bottom to lift up animals that they want to take samples of. And yeah, I'm in the back in, 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 in this little aluminum, it's like a tin can, right? A little aluminum, um, think of two, two bathtubs. Oh, Alana, we're going to take a break, a short break, and we'll come back and join you diving into the depths of the ocean. Okay. Okay. 
Are you thinking green? Want to become a host expert on the Green Talk Network? Contact Jeff Spinard, president of our Internet Radio Division, at 480-294-6417. That's 480-294-6417. Or click on How to Become a Host on our homepage. You're listening to the Green Talk Network. Spread the green. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it will be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. Are you ready to grow your business? Listen for the Independent Business Owners Show with your coach, Rick Carrado. This entertaining talk radio program will bring you the tools to help increase your business. You'll learn sales success, time management, lead generation, business development, life balance, and much more. Rick Carrado is here to help you take your business to the next level. Listen for the Independent Business Owners Show, heard live every Monday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Network. Welcome to the Green Talk Network. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. We're back with Episode 19, Global Crisis and Ocean Journeys of Hopeful Discoveries. My guest is Alana Mitchell. She's the author of Seasick, Ocean Change and the Extinction of Life on Earth. Uh, Alana, if people want to uh, know more about your work or read about what you're up to, is there a website they can go to? Yeah, I have, an, I have a website. It's www.alanamitchell.com. Um, Excellent. You were telling us about this about climbing into this uh, 
rather small um, tiny vessel. This, this is a tiny little submersible. That, <laughs> and I actually, I'm not a big person, but I had to lie down to fit, you know, in this thing. I couldn't sit up. And, uh, and of course, I'm just getting into it when one of the, the chief scientists for this expedition comes over and says to me, you know, how are you doing? And I say, you know, I'm really scared. I'm going into the submersible. We're going to 3,000 feet. I'm the only journalist in the world to go this deep, as far as anyone knows. And, and she says, well, there's no need to be afraid. No one's died in that back chamber now for quite a few years. And she goes on to explain to me exactly how the last guys died, right, in the same chamber that I'm going to be in. <laughs> oh, dear. But actually it was fine, and we got into this thing, and, uh, you know, we, we, we went down at 100 feet a minute, and we were down for about three hours in total, three, three and a half. 100 feet a minute, just going right through this whole medium of life, um, the main medium of life on the planet, you know, 99% of the living space on the planet is in the ocean. And here we are just descending very quickly down through it, looking at all of this this life, you know, as far as we can see. Um, now, being in Florida, the water is pretty clear, pretty deep. Was it, you able to see quite a ways down? or did Well, you can only with... see, you really can't see that. Unless you put the lights on, you can't see much after the first, you know, 200 feet. It's just, it, the, the light doesn't get... get Right. Penetrate that far, but we did have some lights on. And when we got to the very bottom, which was actually the three thousand feet, it was at the bottom of this big sinkhole. And the the vessel we were on, the submersible, had these very strong xenon arc lights. And so they, you know, they put they they put those on so we could see who was down there, <laughs> and uh, to see whether the scientists wanted to capture little pieces of any of these of these creatures. Um, and and it was just amazing because it was just so full of life. I mean, it was just packed teeming with life, even at 3,000 feet at the bottom of a sinkhole. Tons and tons and tons of stuff. Uh, Alana, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Oh, good. Um, when, um, what kind of life did you see? Was it mostly cecil critters or things swimming by or what did you see? Both. A whole bunch of sea fans and sponges that were just sitting still. So they just, they don't move. They just stay in the same place and these are the ones that com- communicate chemically, um, but also a whole bunch of little tiny fish, like some fish that were, uh, you know, about the size of my, you know, pinky fingernail, these pink fish just swimming in a, in a big school past the, 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 yes. the porthole that I, ha- I had by my head, um, and these little, lo- you know, these quite big lobsterish things that had black, you know, with, that were black with little neon lights on the end of their of their um, antenna and just just tremendous amounts of life. That's fabulous. Were the scientists able to collect anything? Yes, they saw some. Uh, they wanted anything that they thought might have chemical, you know, chemical compounds for humans in them. So they they had this robotic arm and they could actually you know push it under. There was there was a, a sea sponge that they that they they were able to capture and they they put it under this this. I mean, this thing's quite huge. Like it was at least up to my knee when we got it up to the surface, and and pull it up by its by its roots, which are almost like fiber optic cables. And then they could put it into a container that was on the outside of the submersible, so we could take it up to the surface. We came up with a whole, you know, with a whole collection of different sea fans and sea sponges and and things like that. And no one had been there before. No human eyes had seen this before. We were the very first in the history of the planet, to, to, to see this. It had, been, it had been found from above by sonar and radar and things like that beforehand, so we knew that there was a formation there that had a, that had a, a, a steep wall, but 
we were at the base of this wall, at the bottom of a sinkhole, looking up, you know, to, to on, the, mm. on this wall to try to find sponges and things like that. Yeah, very first. So that was an amazing discovery of new life, or an oasis of new life down there. Yes, absolutely. And elsewhere in your book, you talk about the ocean dead zones and how that I didn't realize there are two types of ocean dead zones. We've talked a lot on these programs about the... Uh, dead zones like in the Gulf of Mexico that are tied to the heartlands where lots of nutrients are washed and flooded and dumped into riverways that end up feeding the algae and the critters in the ocean that eat up the oxygen and maybe secrete some poisons and ca- cause huge dead zones. But, but you were telling us about another kind of dead zone. Yeah, there are three, and these were only, they've only recently been discovered. There are three in three of the four major eastern boundary currents in the whole global ocean. There are these, these dead zones that are caused by changes to climate that make changes to currents. And so they're not, they're not, it's not like there's a, a direct source of pollution that creates a dead zone. These are caused more globally by high concentrations of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And it's significant because it's completely unexpected and because they can spread, it's unknown then you know how quickly they can spread and how you know how much they could alter the structure of the ocean itself. Because the 387 parts per million of carbon in the atmosphere is all over the place. It isn't just in certain locales. Precisely. So how does that how does that cause trouble in ocean waters? It makes them warmer, so there's more warmth in the ocean. But it also can change the way the currents work, which means that that all of these nutrients can come up from the bottom and feed plankton just the same way that, you know, the the crop fertilizers that run down the Mississippi River feed plankton in the mouth of the of the Mississippi in the Gulf of Mexico. All of these nutrients can be can be can be pushed up from the bottom of the of the cold water and, and they create algal blooms just the same way that, you know, too much phosphorus in the in the fertilizers create Oh right. So the climate or the, the, the weather patterns are causing uh, currents to shift and, and uh, things become available and water temperatures heating up. And right. Good grief. And then that, there's a third happens. element that you were going to tell us about, which is ocean acidification. Ocean acidification is, is the most important problem that's going on right now in the global ocean, and it's, it's something that scientists only discovered. I mean, the very first paper on this was in 1999, so it's, it's quite a recent but what scientists have realized, what they realized in that paper, was that um, a lot of the carbon dioxide that goes into the atmosphere is also absorbed into the, into the global ocean. So about a third of the ancient carbon that we've been putting up into the atmosphere when we burn you know, coal and oil and gas and all that kind of stuff, about a third of that carbon dioxide gas is being absorbed into the, into the ocean. But the thing about it is that when it goes into the ocean, it's chemically reactive. So it it actually turns into carbonic acid when it hits the water. And, and there's been so much carbon that's, that's been absorbed into the ocean that we've actually changed the pH, so the acidity of the global ocean, across the, you know, the top 3,000 meters or so, which is you know, just an enormous, enormous shift. So the ocean is about 30% more acidic now than it was before we started burning fossil fuels. And, 30% uh, more acidic than, say, 150 years ago or something. Yeah, ex- 
exactly. And, wow. and that's speeding up. That's, that's actually happening now more quickly than scientists expected. But for years, scientists used to say, oh, isn't it great the ocean's absorbing all this CO2, and so there's not as much in the atmosphere. They thought of it as the big buffer zone. But in fact, now it turns out that that CO2 that's going into the ocean is actually changing the chemistry of the ocean. And that, that's significant because as goes the chemistry, so goes life. So all of these creatures have evolved in a certain ocean chemistry, a certain pH, and we're now moving out of the range that they evolved in. So we know for sure that the ocean is more acidic now than it's been for 55 million years. And it's getting more acidic every day. And it's a different scale than just, you know, a temperature rising by a degree or a tenth of a degree. If, uh, you were saying in your book that, you know, if humans have a, a 0.2 change in pH, it could be deadly. Yeah, we have a very narrow... pH is a very sensitive range. So in our bodies, we have arterial blood, and arterial blood has to be in the pH range of 7.35 to 7.45 in order to, uh, to support life in our body. So if it goes outside of that, we die. Um, so the one-tenth of a, of a right? pH a window right. that we live in. It's, it's a very narrow window that we live in. Yikes. And, 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 what, and you're seeing, like, nearly a tenth happening in the ocean. It's that we've actually changed the pH of the, of the global ocean more than the range of possible pH in our bodies. So we've changed oh. already by 0.15 of a unit, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it's a logarithmic scale, and so it's actually an, an enormous, enormous change already to the ocean. And how, how is that manifesting in the critters and life that we know in the ocean? Th- that's the subject of a lot of research right now, so it's not completely clear, but, but some of the things that, are, that have become clear are that the more acidic the ocean becomes, the less available calcium is for creatures in the ocean that need to use calcium. And who needs to use calcium? Well, you know, clams have a, have a calcium carbonate shell. Plankton have calcium carbonate shells, some of them. Uh, whales, for example, need to use calcium to build their bones. All of the creatures in the ocean right through the food chain that need to use calcium, have less access to the calcium because of the changes in the chemistry. So over so this, time... Over does this mean time, that they'll just start being more holy and, and, and have more holes in their shells or thinner yeah, shells? Over, or? over time, they won't be able to build their shells, and when the ocean becomes acidic enough, it will actually corrode the shells and skeletons that are there. So things like, you know, the Great Barrier Reef could eventually be completely gone. Wow. Yeah, we've, we've done the experiments in high school where we take a bone and put it in vinegar and watch Precisely. the whole thing just dissolve. Precisely. It's the same basic phenomenon. Of course, the ocean, the ocean water is not as acidic as, as vinegar, but the, but, the, but the chemistry is basically the same. It's becoming more acidic. It's yes. Acidic Lana, enough. we'll be back for more about um, Seasick, the book. I 
Are you thinking green? Want to become a host expert on the Green Talk Network? Contact Jeff Spinard, president of our Internet Radio Division, at 480-294-6417. That's 480-294-6417. Or click on How to Become a Host on our homepage. You're listening to the Green Talk Network. Spread the green. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. It's football, pop culture, and everything in between. Get ready for the game plan with Anthony Heron, a.k.a. Big Ant. Anthony has a background in college and professional football and brings the player, coach, and broadcaster perspective to this weekly roundup of the top sports news and events. Big Ant wants to hear from you, too. Tune in to the game plan with Anthony Heron every Tuesday afternoon at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific time on the voice america sports channel it's game time go inside the world of pr with pr insider hosted by public relations expert maureen kettis maureen will speak to the world's highest profile pr pros from the fields of marketing advertising and sales and pr insider will feature renowned members of the media as special guests Maureen will give you a VIP access pass, including tips and tricks to take your business to the next level. PR Insider with Maureen Kettis, sponsored by Cision, us.cision.com. Listen every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Network. Eco-conscious trends and lifestyles. You're listening to the Green Talk Network. Spread the green. listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. We're back with Alana Mitchell, and she's talking about her book, Seasick. Ocean Change and the Extinction of Life on Earth. And uh, to be frank, I was a little wary of this book because it, talks, it says Extinction of Life on Earth, and I didn't want to get completely bummed out about the eminent demise of everything. And so I was amazed, I was just astounded by her writing style, like Rachel Carson, that um, is hopeful that there are problems there, but, but there's this kind of 
um, can-do attitude that she takes as she goes along with scientists, and she there's also hope in, in, in hearing all the dedication and work that the scientists do individually. But it really comes together when uh, Alana is descending in that um, in the Johnson Sea Link uh, off of Florida, and um, so I, I'd like Alana if you could read us a, a bit about uh, what it was like for you in that submersible. Okay, I'm, I'm going to read to you a little bit from, from that chapter then. And here we are, we're at 3,000 feet. We're looking around at all of these creatures in front of us. And I have been, this whole time, just just caught in the teeth of fear. I mean, I'm just terrified of all of this water on top of me that wants to get in. And all of a sudden, I have an epiphany that has to do with hope. And, it, and here's, here's, what it, here's what it felt like. So... People who go to extreme environments, and that means astronauts and deep divers, often report odd experiences. It has something to do with being pushed past a limit. Some become emotional, focusing on intensely personal issues such as an unresolved relationship with a parent. Others turn to a religious faith, and yet others go on a surprising intellectual journey to the abstract. And this is where I have gone, deep into the theories of time and dimension. And now the epiphany comes. My fear vanishes, and so does my despair. I feel as though I have burst through this cramped space and out into the whole world. I am flooded with hope, with a sweet consciousness of the rich march of time, stretching from the deep past to the remote future, each moment containing all the others. It is impossible to think only in the self-indulgent, despairing, fearful present when surrounded by life across these four dimensions. All this time... Through all these voyages, I've been trying to reason my way to hope, to convince myself that hope is justified, to build a case. It's been the question I asked all the scientists I met. In fact, hope just is. You can't run through a checklist to get to it. Yes, it is absurd and irrational, but like love, it is human. Like laughter, hope catches and spreads. It works logarithmically like the changes now underway on our planet, like our growing understanding of them and like our powerful collective human ability to start coping with them. That doesn't mean that hope is naive. Shivering in my undersea womb, peering at these wondrous ancient life forms, it occurs to me that we are in an era that holds out the potential of magnificent regeneration. We could, if enough of us wanted to, form a new relationship with our planet. We could become the gentle symbionts we were meant to be instead of the planetary parasites we have unwittingly become. Perhaps this is the system switch that will be in the offing. Instead of the ocean lurching further into an irrevocably altered state, maybe humans will irrevocably alter our relationship to it and understand that we must keep it healthy if we are to save ourselves. The point, as one of the scientists explained to me, is that biology, and that includes our species, is at work all the time. Biology is flexible, adaptable. It works in four dimensions all at once, breadth, width, depth, and time. It can always surprise us, can always do the unexpected. This is the ocean's prophecy. It's just astounding the way you put that together. And <laughs> Thank you. Realization. And many people listen to this uh, radio, uh, Internet talk radio program 
because we want to form a new relationship with our planet, and, and you show us how to do that. Um, and what, what can people do uh, in addition to holding on to hope uh, in their own little ways to help bring about a bluer planet Earth? Well, for me, um, the first thing is to choose hope. So you're right, it's holding on to hope, but it's choosing to be hopeful because that is, after all, the key to it. If we don't actually have hope, then there isn't any. So that's the, that's the, the starting point. But in terms, of, in terms of action, you know, every, everybody who's listening to this, every single person has a gift that they can bring to this that is their particular thing, whether they're artists or lobbyists or writers or politicians or, you know, whatever it is that they have to bring to this, I urge them to bring to it. I would never dream of giving a recipe um, or a prescription. You know, if you do these 10 things, everything will be okay. People are listening. They understand the scope of the problem. They know what they can do. And my, my wish is that they unleash their imaginations and just go for it. Yes, yes. So much of it is, I think, you know, listening locally and thinking locally about what you can do and, and talking locally. And this is what families must do is talk amongst themselves about what, 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 what can be done and, and how can you make a little difference. And I get so much from young people because the hope is obvious to them. It's like, yeah, make it right. <laughs> yeah. You foul your nest, you clean it up, right? <laughs> It's, it's yeah. They don't even the question. It's like who's fouling the nest? Stop that! You know, don't pour that car oil down that drain, or don't let that wash into the into the gutter and and so forth. You know, for all for all the damage we've done, you know, to the planet that we've not, you know, intended. We haven't intended to do this, but we've we've done damage. Our our turnaround has been very very quick. You know, when you consider the whole history of life on the planet. Our knowledge on, of what we're doing to the planet is very recent, and we have made really big steps in very few years. Maybe not enough, but... The it's so good to hear you say there. that, because I do think we're a can-do people, and if we see a way, we'll go for it. But There's no question. It, it's, it starts with hope, yeah. It, it starts with hope, and, it's, and it's, it, this is an issue of human culture and human civilization, and it's not the, this, whole, this whole thing of blaming and you know, feeling guilty over it is is uh, we don't have time for that. You know, we, no. we, we just need to sort of move on and get things done, and we certainly have time to do that. And it begins also with seeing the interconnections, that even though you're hundreds of miles from the ocean, um, the air you breathe, as you said, and so many things connect us, and right. that we must be careful in our actions because they do have connections to distant places. Well, the thing that really struck me was when one of the scientists I spoke to explained to me that if everything on land were to die tomorrow, everything in the ocean would be fine. But if everything in the ocean were to die tomorrow, everything on land would also die. We're, we're, and why is we're that? Part of this, we're part of the same system. We're dependent on the ocean for oxygen and for the carbon cycle and for you know, cycling nutrients and, and chemistry through the organic and inorganic systems. So it's, we're, we're all one system, you know? <laughs> Yes, and, and your point in the book of, that you made very clearly a couple times is that so much of the oxygen is produced by plants in the ocean that essentially every other breath we take is with oxygen from the oceans. Every other breath. And, yeah. Is that right? Plankton. I got that? Or? 
plank- yeah, plankton are the lungs of the planet, not the uh, Amazonian forest. I mean, of course, trees play a huge part, but the, the, the lungs of the planet are actually plankton in the ocean. So if we had no ocean, we could only take every other breath. It wouldn't last too long that way. Uh, we wouldn't be here to do that. It w- <laughs> we're, we're dependent on the functions of the, of the plankton to control the carbon cycle and the climate and all sorts of things. So, I mean, life started in the ocean, and without that life, there is no life on the planet. It's a really hard concept for us, but we, we tend to think that everything we see around us in the air is, is what life is. But in fact, that's a 1% view of the world because 99% of the living space is in the ocean. And wow. 1% is in the air, and we're in the air, right? So we have a 1% view of the planet, and, and that's one of the things that's, that's stalled some of the advances we could make to fix some of the problems we're, we're creating. Tell us a bit th- about the complexity of it all. When you were down there in the, in the bathysphere or the, the diving bell, you were um, coming aware of, of how it isn't just three-dimensional space, whereas on land it's mostly one-dimensional. And right. it wasn't just three-dimensional space with some timeline on top of it. It was much more than that, wasn't it? Right. It's all, it's all four dimensions working all at once. And, and the, the trick for us, because we're quite linear, you know, in our, in our concepts. We, Absolutely, we think, yeah. You know, we think of things progressing in a timeline. But, of course, when you're in the ocean, you can see that, that time exists all at the same time. It, to me, it was like the, the Australian Aboriginal concept of dream time, which we know as any when a very different concept, but it's all it's it's all part of the same continuum in the in the, in the ocean. Which sounds flaky, but it's 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 actually true. If you <laughs> you well, got it concretely when you went down through different anywhere times of water, the different water masses you understood were from different parts of the globe, and they were they still had autonomy. The the, the meltwater off of Antarctica, the tongues under the other other waters, all the way up to the Azores and off Nantucket. You know, is identifiable water from the Antarctic and vice versa from from the poles, and and uh, it, it's That's just right. remarkable the way you, you you pull those into cycles instead of being just uh, a linear progression of here today gone tomorrow. And the challenge is to is to is to not think in a linear way when we're thinking about these these issues. We have to think in terms of have to understand the systems that create them, including the human civilization system that create all of these issues that we're dealing with. Alana Mitchell, that's really well said. We'll be right back after this message. Network. Our experts want to hear your voice. Do you have a question or comment for our hosts? Call us toll free 1 888 346 9141. That's 1 888 346 9141. The Green Talk Network. Spread the green. All together Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and 
ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Leadership is a destination, but how do you get there? More importantly, how do you maximize your power and influence and develop more leaders in your organization? Learn from proven leaders and proven practices. Join Drs. Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler for Leadership Development News. This program will help you develop the next leaders in your organization, balance your work life, manage your boss, and manage yourself. We'll feature cutting-edge interviews with industry experts and authors. Leadership Development News, every Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, on The Voice America Business Channel. Get ready for a show that breaks ground on the subject of women in motorsports and what it takes to dream, believe, achieve. Gas and Go with Alio is all about the movement that is happening lightning fast in women's racing. You'll get a wide array of perspectives from the drivers to the fans, as well as what it takes to be a role model in a male dominated sport. Join your host, professional driver Allie Owens, for Gas and Go with Alio. Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific, on the Power Up Motorsports Channel. Eco-conscious trends and lifestyles. You're listening to the Green Talk Network. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Welcome. We're talk- we have been talking with the journalist Alana Mitchell, and she's been telling us about her book, Seasick. And um, the wonder of it all is that she goes into these degraded ocean habitats or these challenged ocean areas, and in the end, she comes out with hope. And um, hope is so empowering that um, it's just a fabulous um, experience. And to me, there's a lot of resonance with the way Rachel Carson brought her nephew down and, and built hope for us to study oceans from talking about a sense of wonder. And, and I think Alana has succeeded in doing that here. And I want to thank you, Alana, for participating in the program. And stay on the line. Um, Mike Dunmire is uh, promotion champions, and uh, Mike's going to tell us a little more about uh, what's happening on Capitol Hill in Washington and uh, across the nation on the, on bringing about political changes to save the ocean. Hi, Mike. There you go. Hey, Rob. So the first thing I want to do is is uh, encourage all of your listeners, Rob, uh, to if you care about the oceans, go buy this book. It is really phenomenal. Uh, it really brings to light so many of the issues that we're wrestling with today, but it does so in such a personal way. 
uh, and you got a sampling there in, in the last segment that it really draws you in. And with that connection, it's very scary, I think, in, in a way that is good because it can drive people to action. And then it really does uh, offer hope at the end. And uh, so please go to Amazon and whatever and, and, and buy this book. You will not regret it. Um, but that, that hope piece is really important, and there are certainly lots of things that different people can do, but one of the things that Ocean Champions has really been encouraging people to do is act politically, uh, to engage in the political process, because who you put in office uh, really does affect what happens to major systems like the ocean. Uh, and uh, 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 to that end, people really should think about what their priorities are and pay attention and vote the ocean if that is a priority. And uh, w- with that in mind, Rob, we've, there, we've got a couple things going on on the Hill right now with, uh, with supporting the administration's request for uh, funding catch shares infrastructure so that we can actually go out and really bring fisheries back. And we're working on our Senate strategy for passing the HABs bill. Um, which we're very hopeful on. But right now we're also turning our attention to the electoral process, and we're starting to roll out our endorsements so the people that we believe, uh, when they get to Congress, if, if we can establish enough support for them and they do get there, can do great things for the oceans. And a couple of the guys we've looked at lately I think are, are great stories here. So you may have seen that uh, just yesterday we rolled out our endorsement for a gentleman named Craig Pridemore for Washington State's 3rd District. Uh, and Mr. Pridemore is a state senator. He's been a, a senator, state senator for uh, two terms. And while he was there, he, uh, he was a driver behind the establishment of one of the first statewide requirements for marine spatial planning, which is a, a thoughtful, collaborative, intelligent way of balancing the uses in the ocean so that you do so as harmoniously as possible. Uh, he has uh, established funding and processes to better prepare uh, the Puget Sound area for any oil spills that might happen so that you could limit damage if one of those catastrophes does strike. And he's done a lot to promote water quality in terms of cleaning up stormwater and cl- in terms of getting phosphorus uh, out of lawn fertilizer in the area and things like that. But one of, the, one of the things that's most wonderful about him is with all of the debate about global warming that's out there and all of the fear politically about people wanting to take a stand, uh, Craig Pridemore is absolutely unequivocal. And he has a quote where he lays it out there in in no uncertain terms. He says, climate change is real, it is a serious threat to our planet, and it is the result of human activity. Uh, So he takes that statement and then backs it up with action. He was the driver behind the establishment of one of the first state-level caps on greenhouse gas emissions uh, that came along with a a great structure for accountability to make sure that it happened. So um, he's in a tough Democratic primary, and frankly, his, his key opponent would be a good ocean guy, would be a good environmentalist. But we look at, at Senator Pryborn, we think he could be an all-star. He really could be a game-changer. So we're very enthusiastic about him. Um, the other race that I wanted to mention uh, to, the, to your listeners is the race that's going on in Maryland's 1st District. And here, uh, the incumbent is Frank Craddeville, and we endorsed Mr. Craddeville in his first election in 2008, uh, and he won just barely. Uh, he's a Democrat, a moderate, in a district that is, has been Republican for 20 years. Uh, it includes the eastern shore of Maryland, the western shore, parts of Baltimore County, so it's got farms, it's got watermen, it's got the yachting set, it's got businesses. It's really diverse. 
but it really hews uh, to the conservative side. So he's in a very difficult position. Uh, but despite that position, he's a wonderfully independent thinker, and on any issue, uh, he will seek expertise on all sides and come to the conclusion that he thinks is best for the people in his district. And we are really happy because he has come to the conclusion that a number of the ocean issues that we have been pushing really are in the best interest of his constituents, and he has been a wonderful ocean champion. So he supported the climate bill, even though he's in a district where McCain beat Obama by 18 points last time. Uh, he uh, has been a, a leader on our harmful algal blooms bill, knowing that that is a big problem for the Chesapeake Bay. Uh, he's done a lot for the Bay in terms of introducing uh, healthy Bay legislation, and he has supported the administration's drive for a national ocean policy. So a great ocean and Bay guy. Now, on the flip side, his opponent is a guy named Andy Harris, and we think that Andy Harris, if elected, uh, would become Pombo Jr. Uh, Andy Harris is got a lifetime score from the Maryland LCV of 13 for his years as a Maryland senator, ironically on an environmental subcommittee, uh, and knowing that phosphorus, nitrogen, and toxins coming in from runoff are the biggest problems for the pollution in this critical watershed, uh, he has nonetheless uh, been one of only five senators who voted against a ban on phosphorus and dishwashing detergent that fortunately passed, and after it passed, he was one of only a couple senators to try and vote for a delay in implementing the ban. Uh, he recently voted against bills to reduce stormwater pollution and reduce nitrogen runoff. He's consistently voted against clean energy bills. Uh, and he's, you know, he was only one, one of only nine senators to vote against strengthening Maryland's auto emission standards. So you look at this, and if you think back to how you want to engage in the political process, and if the oceans and the Chesapeake Bay... Uh, are priorities of yours, a vote for Andy Harris is a vote for a very different and much bleaker future for the Chesapeake Bay than is a vote for Frank Craddaville. And those are the kinds of, of clear choices that are out there, and, and we, would, we would hope that people would pay attention and, and again, vote the ocean. It's very important. So your champion in uh, Chesapeake Bay is Frank Craddaville. Frank Craddaville. Yeah, so Maryland's first And the district. champion in Puget Sound is Craig Pridemore. Pridemore. That's all the time we have for today. I want to thank my guests, Alana Mitchell and Mike Dunmire, for all your help. Bye-bye. Much, Rob. again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Green Talk Network. We'll talk again then.
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Green Talk Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit thegreentalknetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.